AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Matt, you have an interesting story about hotel security or lack thereof. Yeah, it's an interesting write-up. Um, I, you know, I hesitate to call it a write-up. It's from Bloomberg Businessweek, and it reads a lot like uh, a spy novel or a lot like some of the, the, the stories I like to read personally about red team engagements. Um, it, it jumps back and forth between interviews with people who are talking about the state of hotel guest information security and an actual red team in a hotel room finding their way onto the network. Cool. So it's got a little bit of the sizzle that makes it really fun to read and it's got a little bit of the, the more of a where do we stand in terms of hotel security. And there's a lot of little interesting little stories in there. Um, I think the, the points that they're trying to make aren't super well made, but I think it's definitely a fascinating read. Okay. Um, the points that they're trying to make are that there have been a number of breaches, high profile breaches of hotels in the last couple of years, right. some of which have been attributed to you know, maybe state actors who are looking for a list of people who have actually been inside of a hotel. But there's plenty of reasons for a hacker to go after a hotel for monetary gain as well. I mean, if you can get into the, the front desk, you know, credit card numbers are stored there. Um, there's plenty of reasons why people would want to hack hotels. They also go to different ways you could get onto the hotel network into what they call the PMS, the property management system, which is like a combination of the booking reservations and the card access. That's another thing. You know, if you can get into a card access system, you can mint yourself a new card for a room and then go access it and steal the physical objects inside yeah, that room. And for any room. Sure. And I imagine the same thing goes for um, if there's an override code for the safe in the room. And it feels a lot like some of the, yeah. the physical pen testing videos I've seen from like DEF CON or other conferences uh, where someone you know, is, is talking about, well, here's that model safe you've got and guess what the default code is for all of them kind of thing, except more of, from more of a professional pen testing angle. So I just think it's an enjoyable read. I'm not sure if they're making any massive or groundbreaking statements, but I think it's one of the more interesting articles I read this week. I think it's really just bringing to light the, the stories of what's been possible, what has been done to hotels in the last couple of years, um, and how someone would go about attacking a hotel from the perspective of, of being a guest on property. A lot of the times you have these situations where you've got, you've got these companies, you've got these businesses, their focus isn't cybersecurity, their focus isn't technology, really. So the hotel industry, as an example, is perfect because they do use technology like everyone does, sure. but that's not at all their focus. That's a good point that's raised in the story, and they say that for some reason the idea of using technology heavily is antithetical to the idea of the human touch in customer service, which is really the business hotels are in, is customer service and a pleasant experience for the people that stay there. Right. So if they believe that those two things are against each other, uh, like that tech technology is cold, and rather than having a bellhop, you like give somebody an access card to a, a room and maybe a robot to bring their stuff. <laughs> that doesn't feel the same as having someone there, yeah. you know, saying having a have a pleasant stay. I, I mean, kind of get that. I but. do, I do, I do get that as well. Um, but you also have the situation where they're they suffer the same pitfalls as any other. Um, non-security focused company. Like in the article it talks about how the, the PMS system that you talked about, the, the PMS, uh, sometimes they're posted online. Yeah, they're which hosted is crazy. Online. And so that just gives remote access to that thing, Yeah, which isn't good, um, which, which underscores the importance of security in those spaces. I think most hotels should understand their attack surface and realize that guests in the rooms may also be attackers looking to get onto their network. So they can isolate the guest functions from the rest of the functions, that's a, a great first start. And they talk about it too, that the hotel staff, 
typically are not the folks who manage the IT systems. Typically have almost no concept of how they work other than the day-to-day -day of creating cards and signing in guests and dealing with how a hotel works. So I don't know that asking them to work any harder from a, a staff standpoint is going to fix these things. I think yeah. you've either got to have a crack IT staff who both who also know security or the guys who work in security have to do a, a better job of catering to the use cases of a hotel, maybe. Yeah. Right. There's, there's, there's two points with that. It, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, the people that are at the front desk, uh, they can't be cybersecurity experts. What they can do is at least give them enough knowledge to know that certain social engineering tactics, uh, how, how to avoid those, and then the, the back-end uh, group that manages from a security perspective can actually try to tighten down various controls for any company, whether it's the hotel or, or it's anyone else, to reduce those, those threat factors. And, you know, that's definitely key. With, with the hotel environment, there's a lot of different aspects that I think uh, just shouldn't be there. You had mentioned the, you know, the PMS system being online. That's, that's a big no-no in, in, in my perspective. But if you have it locked down where you can't get to it from online, that's a little bit better. You know, make sure that if it is on the internet, it's supposed to be there. And if, uh, and if it is supposed to be there, that it's secure um, and not just sitting out there with default credentials. I, just based off of my personal experience, things that I've, I've read, or more importantly, haven't read, you know, hotels just haven't been at the forefront of everyone's discussion around security. That's changing, obviously, That's changing. because high-profile breaches are occurring, unfortunately, uh, and then more and more discussions are, are happening. But that might be a contributing factor as to why we're not seeing a, more of a, a, a push for security in that industry. Maybe it's just me, but if I knew for a fact that my hotel was doing a better job of security, I might choose them over somebody else. Yeah, I would too, I definitely. Yeah. You know, if you do know of a hotel that is doing it right, you know, Make it a point to stay with them. Hey, Tony, I hear you have an update on Magecart for us. Yep, Magecart is back in the news again. Uh, this time uh, from uh, Sanguine researchers, uh, they reported that were 960 different e-commerce sites were actually hit with Magecart. It looks like it was done within about 24 hours. Wow. Uh, with the article, it was really interesting. It looked like it was one of the Magecart groups. I think they termed it Group 7. But this one in particular likes to use automation while they're scanning uh, various websites looking for exploits. Uh, in this case, the researchers were not definitive on exactly what was the cause, but it looked like it was a uh, PHP flaw Okay. where... Uh, a lot of these sites, they weren't patched. So as the scanning occurred, they found PHP, they tried to exploit it, they were successful, and then they were able to put in the, uh, the credit card skimmer, which what, that's what Magecart is. Obviously, something like that has to be automated, but I think just finding those, those vulnerabilities in that amount of time and then also pushing through that exploit to get your code onto that system, that's, that's, that's a big deal. These mage cart groups, they go back to it, the seven core cyber uh, criminal groups, uh, their targets are not very specific. So they don't necessarily target only like little mom and pop e-commerce sites. 
but they go from, you know, large all the way down to SMB and, and the mom and pop sites. It all comes down to how the e-commerce on those sites are actually set up. Yep. And if our, our criminals can actually get on those sites and inject their, their credit card uh, skimming code. Uh, the credit card skimming code uh, typically will consist of trying to scrape all of the credit card information, uh, names, phone numbers, addresses, anything that they can use to um, have financial gain. So if I'm someone who runs my own online store or mm -hmm. something, what, what can I do to make sure that I don't get mage carded? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, if, if you're hosting an e-commerce site, uh, whatever uh, programs, applications you're using to run your e-commerce site, you know, I would suggest always try to keep in the loop with those applications anytime they release any patches. Uh, if they announce that there is a, a vulnerability that was found and they've got security controls. So from a purveyor's perspective, from an IT professional's perspective, you know, make sure things are up to date. Uh, and then Matt brought up a great point by keep logs. There are certain parts of your site that should almost never change. You know, there might be parts where the database gets updated or, well, you know, users can maybe upload something. But the core functions of your site, like the front page or the part where you process credit cards, shouldn't have new JavaScript references added to them or, or new you know, JS files added almost ever. Yeah, the so, code that touches payment card information right. should be the same. Right, right. so standard. I would watch that like a hawk because the way the, the attack works is they have to inject that code into your site in some way. If they can't do that, um, or if at least you notice it when they do do that, you can at least shut your site down and say, we got hacked, clean up, figure out how they got in, hopefully, um, and go from there. Now, also, I would recommend that if you use any third-party JavaScript libraries that you don't host locally, maybe consider hosting them locally, or do the same kind of monitoring on those. Because if, if someone managed to compromise that third-party site, wherever that library that you're relying on is, and sneaks the code into MageCart, guess what? You got MageCarted, and you didn't have to do anything. So, I mean, and some of those are probably above the, uh, above the skill level of, of some site operators, but I would recommend they look into it. Yeah, I, I think those are those are fantastic items, and you know, as you as you said, especially for mom and pop shops, where it would be easy for them to just kind of, you know, click over to a third party site. That is where they personally have to be careful. But all of the items that that you brought up are, are excellent points for anyone that's hosting an e-commerce site to make sure that they at least take a look at. So I think really the story is mostly for people who run e-commerce sites to have them understand that this is an ongoing thing, that just because you haven't been attacked yet doesn't mean that you're not going to be the next target, and that there are precautions that you should be taking to prevent this from happening to you and to your customers. Andy, I heard something that uh, you're going to talk about an elderly weakness within Firefox. Do you want to go into details? Yeah, I do. Um, so there's a 17-year-old weakness in the same origin policy that uh, Firefox enforces in its browser. And a security researcher has recently come out with a proof of concept that takes the way that security policy, that uh, same origin policy is implemented uh, and leverages it in some ways. Hmm to read the files that are in its local folder and then send those files off to a remote server, uh, which isn't good. Previously, opening an HTML file was usually pretty safe, typically. Um, this particular proof of concept sort of 
turns that on its head a little bit. Uh, how, how this is working, the attack scenario, if you will, is you send an HTML file to someone, and they open it. Now, when you, if you were to download an HTML file and then you open it from your, you know, from your local directory here, you, know, you use the file scheme, you know, the file colon slash slash scheme, not sure. HTTP, not HTTPS. So uh, what that does is um, how it works, actually, is, is it's not super clear. He didn't reveal the secret sauce and exactly how he was doing it. All right. But essentially, there's an iframe involved, and the iframe source is such, such uh, it's the same as where the file was downloaded. So usually, it's the downloads folder. Some, it could be any okay. other folder. Uh, and essentially, what happens is the iframe is hidden inside of a button. And when the user clicks on the button, it allows that HTML file access to the files in its local directory mm. and any and any other um, child directories as well. Interesting. So mm. there's a there's a fair amount of social engineering that needs to go into this because first of all you need to get that HTML file onto the local machine um, and then you need to get the user to open that file and then click on a, a specific button for that exploit to actually yeah. run. The, the button part is interesting to me. I'm trying to think why you would need to, what, what's so special about this that a button is required and it's right. not automatic, right? So, right, exactly. So I haven't had a ton of time to actually go in and, and see exactly how this is working because I'm definitely interested in it. Uh, you know, I wrote some, some, just a small little HTML with, with an iframe just to see how, how it's going to work. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to actually figure out exactly how it's doing it. So maybe I'll circle back and, and see if I can reach the same conclusion. Uh, what drew me to this story, though, was the fact that this this weakness in the same origin policy implementation in Firefox, not only is it 17 years old, mm -hmm. which is a very long time, uh, especially in, in tech years. I don't know what that is. Sure. I don't know what the conversion rate is. It's definitely more than seven. But um, the other thing is that Firefox is the only browser that implements the same origin policy such that this proof of concept is possible. Okay. And what's interesting is if you look at the original bug that was submitted, um, you can see that the bug was submitted like 17 years ago, and it was updated like I don't know days ago or something like that. Oh wow! Which is kind of cool. So it is. It is in fact a, a very old bug. But it sounds like it was like a won't fix or not a bug situation. Or yeah, that's that's a good. That's another aspect of this. Is it was responsibly reported by the security researcher, and the response he got back was, the same origin policy does what it's supposed to. Hmm. Interesting. So it wasn't explicitly stated by Mozilla, by Firefox, that they're not going to fix this or they're not concerned about this at all. Um, but they did give somewhat of a stoic, suggestive answer, suggesting, of course, that they don't see it as a problem. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It's an interesting case, and it's definitely kind of a, an interesting story to think about that this is a question that hasn't been solved for 17 years. Thinking about it, from 17 years ago to, to now, the threat landscape is so different that maybe something 17 years ago, 15 years ago, eight years ago, wasn't as effective as it could be used today. Uh, you, you'd say to social engineering, let's get this HTML file local. Um, the one thing that I don't know is if local would be, you know, an email as well as just copied to a particular directory. But the threat landscape, it's so much easier to get an individual file to somebody now than it was 17 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting because in the security researcher in his video, he actually, his delivery method is an email. So he sends an email that has an attachment and okay. the attachment is this HTM file, mm -hmm. HTML file. 
And um, to your point, Tony, it's interesting because you don't have to use email you know, these days. You can use any number of, of things. You can even just put it on a thumb drive. Just leave it somewhere and, and have it be saved to a particular directory. So from, uh, from a user's perspective, I would extend the distrust that you have generally for things that you download uh, to HTML files, HTML files. Don't give them a free pass just because, hey, it's just a markup file. All right, Andy, let's take a look at this week's internet weather. Uh, the most probed ports for the week. Um, not a whole lot of movers and shakers, but we'll go through them. Uh, 445 is still SMB. 23 TCP is Telnet, 22 is SSH, 80 ICMP is Ping, hasn't moved at all. Uh, 8545 is up one, that is Ethereum. 3389 is remote desktop protocol. 81 is an alternate web port. 8089 is another of those web ports, but most likely related to Splunk. Uh, 80 TCP is up by two. 8088, again, another alternate web port. Now the most sources probing. Um, the top four have not changed, which is really something. Uh, let's just jump down to number five, 5431, which is the Broadcom-related UPnP port. Uh, 22 TCP is SSH. 5900 is up by 22 spots. Wow. Yeah, right, that's VNC. Huh. Uh, 80 ISMP is ping. 8291 and 8728 I will go into in a second, and I'm fairly sure that this is related scanning activity, but both of them appear to be related to Microtik routers. So 445 TCP SMB, I cover it because it's at the top of the list, but the volume has not really significantly changed all that much in terms of sources, and this is a 60-day view. So scan SIPs on 8728, Microtik Router OS API port. Um, you can see around the second or third, we really had an uptick in this, uh, maxing out around uh, 4,000 scan sources per hour. And there was a little bit of activity back in the start of in middle June, um, but nowhere near as many sources as we're seeing. So that may be some exploratory scanning there. I think the one that happened on the second, or maybe on the first right there, uh, is, is most likely that final exploratory before they went full, full bore on the scanning. Um, and it does seem to, to jump up and down quite a bit, uh, this scanning. The sources are primarily in India and Vietnam. What the significance of that is, I'm not sure. Uh, it would probably be worthwhile to see if we can identify some of these scan sources, see if they themselves have these ports open, because if they do, it's a good chance they're Microtik routers. Mm -hmm. If they don't, it may be some sort of concerted scanning effort from some other platform, looking in particular for Microtik routers. Yeah. There seems to be a lot of activity, a lot of different scanning sources, um, looking specifically for ports that Microtik routers typically have open. 8291 is also related to Microtik. This is Microtik Winbox, and actually it's not the first time we've seen a t an uptick in this scanning. You can see, again, this, the same population of scanners as well as doing this. Um, there were, you know, regular jumps. We see the 25th is one, the 19th is one, and then again on the second, and then now we've got this baseline. So there may have been some other botnets scanning specifically for this, but ever since the second or third or so, we've got a, a, a baseline floor that's significant. So that's why I think this is that second population jumping in, and maybe these other ones are unrelated. I can't really say for sure. But I think the point of scanning for these ports is to identify Microtik routers. The vulnerability, as we've learned in the past, may not be on that port, uh, but it is a good way of fingerprinting these routers quickly instead of having to speak some generic port. On, you know, if you're talking on port 80 or 443 takes a little bit longer, but if, the port, if it's open on this port, there's a pretty good chance uh, that what you're talking to is a Microtik uh, router. 
We also have an uptick in scanning on uh, VNC, port 5900 TCP, which we hadn't seen much activity in for a while, but someone has a definite interest in that as well. And the sources we've got here are from the US primarily. Mm. Yes, which is kind of interesting. Uh, somewhere around 9,000 scan sources per hour, and that did make it into the top 10. And you can see there was a noise floor of about 1,000-ish to 500 every day or so. But now someone's really paying attention to it. Yeah. Um, Do you have any indication as to why? Not really. I mean, VNC is, is a pretty old protocol, actually. It's been around for a while. It's another one of those remote desktop-ish protocols. It behaves slightly differently. But who knows? There may be someone has figured out either a vulnerability within VNC itself or has an idea that there's some device out there that both uses VNC and has some known credentials. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, so that's the internet weather. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Sure. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.